We pray this in Jesus' holy and powerful name. Amen. I'm not sure if you heard the news out of Houston, Texas from a little earlier this week. The City Council of Houston subpoenaed the sermons of five Houston pastors as a part of litigation arising out of a hotly contested transgendered rights ordinance that was called the Equal Rights Ordinance, which was passed by the Houston City Council recently. The Houston mayor wanted local pastors to turn over their sermons and papers that dealt with the topics of homosexuality and gender identity. Each of the five pastors whose sermons and speeches had been subpoenaed had been outspoken critics of the ordinance and were a part of some 400 Houston area churches that had spoken out against the ordinance and opposed it. While the city and the mayor appear to be showing some signs of backing down due to the negative publicity, statements have been made to the effect that if pastors and preachers use their pulpits to deliver political messages, then the content of their sermons and their speeches can be discovered and are subject to discovery in the context of a lawsuit dealing with those topics. Many observers believe that this is an example of government officials trying to silence and shame America's pastors under the guise of tolerance and diversity. Of course, this is only one of many examples that we are hearing more increasingly about in American society of attempts to silence Christians, particularly Christians who in any way move their speech into the realm of the public arena. At colleges and universities around the country, increasingly Christian organizations, for example, the Christian Legal Society, Campus Crusade for Christ, InterVarsity Fellowship are, are facing colleges and administrations that are saying, you are not welcome here. You cannot meet on our campuses. We will not recognize you as an official or student organization because of what you believe and what you practice. The IRS has admitted in recent years that it's targeted Christian groups and Christian organizations because of their political messages that are informed by their faith. We've heard about Christian businesses of late that have been threatened with fines by the government for conducting their businesses in a Christian manner according to principles that they believe are acquired by the Bible. We could go on with stories and examples like this. They're increasingly common. The practice and preaching of biblical Christianity is becoming an object of scorn and animosity in our society But this is nothing new. This has been true at many times and places throughout history. It's certainly true to a much greater extent in many places outside of America today where Christians are experiencing real persecution and real physical danger, particularly in the Middle East right now. This should not come as a surprise to us as believers. As Christians, we're called to embrace countercultural values that will often put us at odds with the prevailing sentiments and values of our day. Therefore, the words of Paul that we're examining this morning are as timely and as urgent as ever. So let's take a step back and let's look at the broader context of these powerful words delivered by the veteran Paul to the young Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul is speaking tenderly and lovingly to Timothy, but also with a tone of palpable urgency and directness. Paul is weary, but he's not broken. We sense in Paul's letter a sense of resolution. One commentator has referred to 2 Timothy as a letter mixed with both gloom and glory. Paul is in prison, 
And he's living out his final days in a cold and dark Roman dungeon. Historians say it was the Mamertine prison. He's a prisoner once again, as he had been many times throughout his life, but this time he's anticipating his execution. He recognizes his end is at hand, and he's giving to Timothy, his faithful friend and co-worker, his last final instructions, his last will and testament, his dying wish. Paul's purpose in this letter is to stimulate, to inspire, and to encourage Timothy to keep going and to fill, fulfill his gospel ministry despite the clear and present dangers that await him and that await each of us as believers. Apparently, from indications in this letter, Paul has some reason to worry that Timothy might be struggling and he is in danger of weakening spiritually. Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame this gift of God. Paul encourages Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul exhorts Timothy to follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Paul instructs Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul counsels Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Paul also counsels Timothy to share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He encourages Timothy to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul urges Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness and peace and justice and faith and love. Paul warns Timothy that difficult days are coming when godlessness will reign and where persecution of those who love God will be an ever-present reality. These days will be characterized by those who have an appearance of godliness, but who deny its power, and by those who oppose and deny the truth, and those who seek to satisfy their own desires and pleasures. In preparation for these days, Paul reminds Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in essence, in the passages leading up to our passage for today, Paul is warning Timothy, yes, even more difficult days are ahead. Yes, suffering is inevitable. Therefore, it is imperative that you be strong, my son. Be strong. Don't bail out. Don't quit. Don't be discouraged. Don't be sidetracked. Don't be detoured. Don't downgrade or dummy down the message or compromise the truth. So now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're ready for the fireworks, for the crescendo of Paul's final instructions to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, begins the climactic finish that summarizes and reiterates the major points of Paul's letter. Paul's words here resound with passion and with solemnity. Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, whether it's popular or unpopular, whether it's met with accolades or with execution. Timothy is to take his legacy of faith, which was passed down to him by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, and then by Paul himself, and to keep on keeping on despite the persistent attacks, despite the persistent ridicules, despite the dangers. Paul is to do just as, Timothy is to do just as Paul had done, to teach the truth and oppose falsehood. Paul reiterates that solid teaching, the right handling and division of the word of truth, is essential 
because of our human tendency to turn away from hearing to the, the truth and instead turn to myths. All of us are naturally drawn to excitement. We like to feel good. We like success. We like prosperity. We like those things that draw a crowd. This is human nature. We like to hear creative and innovative uh, interpretations of the Scriptures. In essence, we gravitate to those teachers who will tell us those things that suit our passions, that spark our curiosity, and that tickle our ears. But frankly, the business of weak preachers preaching weak messages to weak churches is, is booming, booming in our day and time. But the, the, antidote, the antidote to this widespread problem is the same as it ever was. It's the preaching of the pure and undefiled Word of God, the propositional revelation given from God to man. We're too easily led astray when the focus, the primary focus in our churches becomes about being user-friendly or culturally relevant or following the teachings of self-help gurus or psychological fads or emphasizing tolerance and acceptance at the expense of sound doctrine or promising what God can do for our earthly success or welfare or about the latest marketing strategies, logos, mottos, techniques, advertising or about worship styles or even building campaigns or our own subjective experiences with God apart from the Word. The antidote for weak teaching and weak churches and weak lives is found here in 2 Timothy. It's the preaching, the public proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ and the doctrinal content of the Word at all times, in all places, in all seasons, without fear or favor. What is not needed is popular preaching. What is needed is powerful preaching that's faithful to the text of Scripture. The preaching of the Word doesn't need fancy packaging. It doesn't need sequins and glitters. It doesn't need fancy suits. It doesn't need prancing and dancing. It doesn't need a hipster jacket or skinny jeans to be relevant. What the Word needs is to be preached. Yes, with attention to the proper context. Yes, with an awareness of one's audience and a tailoring of the message to one's audience. But, but we need not be ashamed of the Gospel message. For it's the power of God. The Word carries its own force and its own efficacy. People today are starving for this sort of biblical preaching and teaching. And the sad thing is that many don't even know it. Those outside the church and many of those inside the church who may sit fairly regularly in church pews or church chairs, maybe they watch TV preaching, they don't receive as often as they should regular and systematic and faithful preaching of the doctrine of the Word. Instead of meat and potatoes, they exist on foam and froth and fizz. Martin Luther stated, The highest worship of God is the preaching of the Word. The highest worship of God is the preaching of the Word. Praise is not the only worship. Communion is not the only worship. The earnest heralding, hearing, and application of God's Word is essential, and that's the foundation of our worship. I feel very blessed and thankful to be a part of a church family here at FCC that gets this, that understands this truth. It's led by men who understand this and live it out. Each of our elders and our ministers that have led this church to this point have evidenced their passion for the Word. We are a church body rooted, rooted in the truths of Scripture, and unashamedly so, and in the gospel message of Jesus Christ that it proclaims, 
And regardless of whatever changes may continue to occur within our body, that is going to remain constant, and it must remain constant. That is core. Everything else, means, methods, strategies, that's secondary. So we must continue to hold a high view of Scripture, its role in our corporate worship, and of course in our personal lives. Hebrews 4.12 states that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of men. So let's look again a little more closely at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. It reads, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom. Paul here invokes the imagery of Christ's judgment, of His appearing and of His kingdom, to impress upon Timothy a sense of urgency to fulfill his gospel mandate. The expectation and the future reality of Christ's judgment and His appearance and His coming kingdom adds a sense of weight to the charge that is to follow. Christ is coming. He will judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will reign forever. Be ready. In verse 2, the content of Paul's charge is delivered. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy is to waste no time. He must get after it. Paul demands that Timothy here preach the Word. The Greek translation of this is to proclaim aloud or to herald the Word. Paul makes the preaching of the Word the signature of the Christian ministry. There's no option for Timothy to be shy or reticent in fulfilling this calling, whatever his natural disposition might be. The preacher, Timothy, is not to air his own opinions, but is to proclaim God's eternal authoritative word of truth. Next in verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. This, is, this means whether it's convenient or inconvenient. The preaching of the word is not to be reserved to times when we feel like it or when just the time seems just right to us. Essentially, the call is to be prepared to proclaim the gospel all the time. This isn't, of course, just for preachers or ordained ministers. This holds true for all of us as believers. 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us that we must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Yet we must do it with gentleness and respect. Our task is simply to present a faithful and a sound witness and defense. The task of persuasion, that's for God and for His Spirit. to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. To reprove means to correct or show another person where they are wrong. The task in mind is essentially, is essentially that of revealing sin, of bringing the hearers of a point of a, to a point of awareness and acknowledgement of sin. To rebuke means to tell someone to stop, to censure or to admonish them, or to prevent an action or to bring it to an end. Now, no one who enjoys reproving or rebuking is likely fit for the ministry. No one who enjoys that. However, if we fail to do this, we're shirking our responsibilities and we're not fulfilling our gospel mandate. If we're people pleasers, popularity seekers, we will not fulfill this calling. 
The apostles in Acts remind us that we must please God rather than men. But thankfully, Paul's imperative commands to Timothy don't stop with rebuking and reproving. He also packages these imperatives with the command to exhort. And to exhort simply means to comfort or to encourage. We are to come alongside one another with encouraging words and to bear one another's burdens and to live life together. The commands to reprove, rebuke, and exhort are modified by the concluding phrase here, which is with complete patience and understanding. Persistence and forbearance are to be practiced when dealing with sinful people like you and me. We're not to tolerate sin, no, but we are to bear with one another's weaknesses and exhibit great patience with one another. And the hardest part, perhaps, of all is that we should be accepting and thankful to receive godly reprovals, rebukes, corrections, and instructions. But being willing to take such words is exceedingly difficult and takes a lot of humility, and we don't like it. So the question for you and I today is this. Are we able and willing to both provide and to receive godly correction and instruction? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Timothy must preach the word because people naturally move away from the truth. We are prone to apostasy if we're not rooted in Scripture. If we're not moving towards the truth, we're moving away from it. There's no neutral or middle ground. In these verses, Paul implies that sound teaching is a means of remaining faithful to the gospel and avoiding our drift into self-deception. All teaching is to be evaluated by the standard of Scripture so that teaching just doesn't become the opinions of the teacher or it's not just entertainment. Today, of course, many preachers fill churches and fill arenas by telling people what they want to hear about money, about health, and about politics. Or they might proclaim novel or bizarre doctrines that appeal to people's curiosity or selfish interests. Paul identifies these as false teachers who promote myths, those teachings that are deceitful, those teachings that are utterly implausible, those teachings that don't stand up to scrutiny of sound doctrine. Troublesome and deceitful times call for powerful preachers. Preachers that will not be intimidated. Preachers that will not cater their message to itching ears. And I'm so thankful we have a preacher here at First Christian and Scott who does just this. He's not intimidated. Finally, in verse 5, Paul sums up his charge to Timothy. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy is to keep his head in all situations. He is to be spiritually alert and he is to be self-controlled. His behavior and his attitudes are to be emphatically opposite to those who teach heresy and to those who succumb to it. Instead, personal stability is to characterize the life of a preacher and a minister. And each of us in an upside-down, relativistic, tumultuous world, we need stability. Our circumstances may change. Our families or jobs may cause us to relocate. 
our health will inevitably deteriorate, but what remains constant and what we must do is to heed God's call to preach the Word, to hear the Word, and to apply the Word. This is always to animate us. When suffering comes, of course we must endure it. And just as Paul instructed Timothy here, we must fulfill our ministry. Just as Timothy were to put our hands to the plow and not look back until our ministry is completed, just as Timothy, we are to finish strong. So the question for us this morning is will we draw motivation from these last recorded words of Paul? Do we recognize that we're in troublesome times that don't call for a spirit of fear or timidity, but instead call for a spirit of love and power and of a sound mind? Do you and I lend our ears to those who tell us what we want to hear or what we need to hear? Are we open to godly rebuke and reproof and instruction, and are we willing to provide that to others? Are we prepared to proclaim the gospel message at all times with patience and with love and with gentleness and respect? Are we living with a sense of urgency and expectation that Christ is coming in judgment and to establish His kingdom? And are we ready? Are we clinging to Scripture as if our lives and the lives of others that we come in contact with depended on it? Are we fulfilling our ministries? In a body like this, we all have different spiritual giftings. We're all called to different ministries, but are we fulfilling whatever it is that we're gifted to do and called to do? Are we on track to finish strong and are we clinging to God for strength in this charge? If you're like me, <laughs> your answer is probably something like, I want to, but, but not to the degree that I should. So may we heed the words of Paul this morning. And like Timothy, may we accept this charge and may God strengthen us for this task in these difficult times. This morning we want to give you the opportunity just to respond to God's word, to respond to the gospel.